So we um, celebrated last Sunday, Christmas Eve, together, which was a joy for those who were able to be here. Uh, And today we get to celebrate New Year's Eve. And though New Year's Eve is not anything necessarily special in the life of the church, I do think New Year's Eve gives us an opportunity to reflect. It's a reminder of the passage of time. And it reminds us that we need to use our time well. With each passing year, we grow closer and closer to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so with another year gone by, we have a chance to stop and look back and ask, did, did I grow in Christ this year? What are, what are things that, that I'm able to celebrate and thank the Lord for? And they are many. And we can set goals for ourselves in the year ahead. What are areas that I'd like to see myself grow in? I consider this for us as a church. What are, what are things and ways the Lord might be leading us this year ahead? And we don't want the reflection of the year past to be a depressing exercise, but one that will promote further growth. I read this verse earlier, but when we look back, we are able to forget what we ought to forget. We accept grace for our failures, and then we strain forward to what lies ahead. We press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this is what I want for us as a church. And so this morning, as we look into 2024, I want to make sure that we set the right goals for ourselves, pressing on in Christ towards that upward call of God. When properly understood, this goal won't leave us frustrated with failure or arrogant from success. People set a lot of goals at New Year's Eve. And I looked up statistics and it's like 36% drop out the first week and only about 9% make it to the end of the year. That's depressing. But when we set the right goals, we don't face that. When properly understood, the goals we set in Christ remind us of his grace so that we marvel at his mercy and we boast in the work that he has done alone. So to help us as a church center as we head into 2024 to help us ensure we don't set the wrong goals or place our hope in the wrong places, we're going to continue on in our Matthew series. And this morning we're going to read from Matthew chapter 16. It's the remainder of the section that we did last Sunday morning on Christmas Eve, which shows us the disciples finally, if though imperfectly, grasping who Jesus is. We saw Peter declare that Jesus, to Jesus, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus isn't just another prophet. Jesus isn't a political leader. He is the Messiah. The one prophesied and promised from long ago, the Savior of the world. He's the reason we gather together today. And so we'll read now from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20. And what we're going to see is Jesus' response to this recognition of his messianic title and how he takes this foundational profession of faith and anchors the church that he is building upon that truth. So let me pray for us now as we head into God's word. We need his help to understand it. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege of holding in our hands your divine inspired authoritative truth. Thank you that you have given us your word that we might know who you are and what you have intended for us as people. We thank you that we have the ability to know your son, Jesus Christ. 
the son of the living God. And I pray you help us this morning to understand your truth. Help me to communicate it well. And I pray that we would be shaped and affected by it, which you guarantee and promise to do. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Matthew 16, chapter, uh, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that we get the mention of the church. And one of the only few times in the Gospels themselves that we get that word used. The Greek word for church was a common word used for people gathered together, having been called to do so, a meeting convening. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, this term was used for the times when God's people would gather together. Well, here Jesus uses it to describe the work that he's doing. Thus far in Matthew, we've talked about the kingdom of God. We discussed how the kingdom was less a specific place as it is the rule and reign of God over his people. And while that kingdom language is always applicable, here Jesus introduces a description of the people of that kingdom as the church, the gathered. When we are saved, we certainly are saved as individuals, but we are also saved as individuals who are a part of the family of God, the body of believers, the church. This is a helpful phrase that has been introduced and used previously. God's people were described by the ethnic nation of Israel. God's people were the children of Abraham. And while believers, as believers, we are all Abraham's children through faith and we are all part of the new Israel, the rise and use of the term church throughout the New Testament would have been very helpful to signify the new covenant community that has been born. The kingdom is not something that you're a part of by birth or heritage. It's something you are a part of because you've been called out by God and placed your faith and trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we use the term church, that's what it means. And in the scriptures, it can have nuanced uses. We can mean a local gathered body of believers we are a church, but it also means the church universal. 1 Corinthians 1-2 has a good description of what that church is. It says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and 
ours. The church then are believers in any place who have called upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and have been washed by the forgiveness of his blood. That means the church is not a building as beautiful as this building is. The church is not a specific form of institution. The church universal is comprised of all of those who belong to the household of faith, God's people he has gathered to himself. Now that said, we want to understand as God's people, as a people, we're bought to be united. And so though we can be his children and never attend a local church, that's not good for us spiritually. It doesn't bring God glory, and it's not how he intended it to be. We are told to not give up the habit of meeting together. We are a gathered people, so we need to be a gathered people. As well, though proclaiming Christ as Lord is the basis of entrance into the church, we are to be people who seek to grow in the understanding of God's word and to walk faithfully in his ways. Theology and doctrine, they're very important. There are certain practices that are done when as people gather, communion, baptism, preaching of the word, fellowship, care for one another, so on. But the base level defining characteristic of the church of God is souls who have been bought and redeemed by him and have been sanctified. If you've repented of your sins and you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are a member of his church. And we need to understand that because that's going to inform how we think about the church as this passage rolls on. And so we are the church. And in this first use of the term, Jesus gives us wonderful truths to anchor ourselves on as we seek to be a local expression of this universal reality. And as we head into 2024, as a local gathering of God's people, I want us to grasp this immovable promise, Christ will build his church. No matter what happens to us here in Malvern, Christ will build his church. Now, before we go much further, there's a lot we got to accomplish in today's message, so pray for me. We have to take a minute to address one aspect of this passage that has fueled one of the biggest divisions among the people of God, that being Christ's declaration to Peter specifically about the role that he will have in the establishment of the church. This passage has been used over time by the Catholic Church specifically to set up the institution of the papacy and and all that surrounds the role of the Pope. And it would be amiss for me not to speak to that in some way. Now, I'm not going to take long on that this morning. We recently did a Valley Creek U course on understanding Catholic doctrine. And if you're interested in learning more about why we believe the Catholic position on this passage and the office of the Pope is not grounded in biblical authority, but rather human tradition, you can reach out to me and I can share those resources with you. But I do still briefly want to share some comments on this passage as it relates to Peter, that we might be encouraged and we might avoid error. Peter has just made this declaration of Jesus being the Messiah. And in response, Jesus makes some significant declarations of his own. Now, over time... And by over time, I mean centuries after the scriptures were written, 
the Catholic Church came to believe that this passage instituted an office in which Peter was the rock of the church. He was the earthly head over it with all other priests and clergy under him. Of all the apostles, Peter in the Catholic understanding is above them all. And, and this authority given to Peter was an authority that would then be passed on down to successors over time. And over time, this office came to have attached to it infallibility in certain declarations, a specific geographic centrality in Rome, and a type of authority that, as Protestants, we would argue, should only be ascribed to Jesus Christ himself. This elevation of the Pope, who was not Jesus, was a significant part of the Protestant Reformation. In response, what I will say in brief is that this passage, nor any other passage in the New Testament, nor even the history we do have of the early church, teach of an established ongoing office of Pope as it is now understood. There's, there's no indication in the New Testament that the office of the apostles, the twelve, was going to be an ongoing work, but rather they were a unique group used by Jesus for a specific purpose for establishing his church. And Peter does not have any kind of special authority even over these apostles. That doesn't mean, though, that there isn't something noteworthy in this passage. Though we believe the Catholic Church has misunderstood this text and has created this institution of the Pope, we can't be afraid to acknowledge what's actually going on here. As Jesus is, is talking about the establishment of his church, there is a commendation of Peter himself. Though Peter was speaking on behalf of the disciples, Jesus honors him for being the first to declare that he was the Christ. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Simon Peter didn't earn this honor, it was a gift from God. All of it is faith. And yet Jesus honors him nonetheless. He gives him the nickname of Peter meaning stone or rock. And then he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now this is where the big question comes in. What's the rock Jesus will build his church on? Is it Peter? Is it Christ? Is it the confession Peter's just made? And what does it mean if any of these things were true? Different theologians have said different things over time. First observation which we will elaborate on in a minute, is it is Jesus' church. We must not forget that. So even if Peter is the rock in this metaphor, it's not Peter's church, it's Jesus' church. And it's Jesus' work, not Peter's. Jesus is the one who builds it. So no matter what the interpretation is, Peter does have to stay in his proper place. Second observation, just because Jesus is the rock, and he is the rock. The scriptures make that clear. Scripture also makes clear that God isn't shy at times to apply metaphors used for Christ to his people when they're taken in the right context. For example, Jesus is the good shepherd, but pastors are called shepherds of the people as well. Jesus is the solid rock we build upon. But we are told the 12 apostles and prophets of old form the foundation of the household of God. These metaphors have to be understood in context and in light of Christ 
and in light of the rest of the Scriptures. And so in light of that, while I do believe that Jesus is our ultimate rock, I don't believe he's referencing himself here. Also, while I do believe that this is a nod to the profession Peter just made, essentially saying, Peter, I'm naming you rock, and on this rock, this profession you just made, I will build my church, I think it's clear he's also using wordplay to say that Peter would have a significant role in the early church as it's being established. It's an honor he's bestowed upon Peter. In fact, this passage is an example of that. Who was the first we have recorded to declare Christ, the Messiah? It was Peter. Peter would play a large role throughout the Gospels and be used in a significant way in the book of Acts and beyond. So we don't want to diminish that. This is kind of Jesus to honor Peter in such a way, knowing Peter was as flawed as he was. Peter would wind up denying Christ not too long after this. God uses flawed people. I'm very thankful for that. And I thank God for Peter, and I thank God for the rest of the apostles. But what we see in the rest of the New Testament is that while Peter had a historical significance in the beginning of the church, he was one among equals. The ability to bind and loose that's spoken of here is also spoken of broadly to the other disciples in just a few chapters. We'll talk about that in a minute. The other apostles we see in the scriptures direct Peter and even rebuke him at times. We see James take over leadership at the Jerusalem council. Peter writes only a small portion of the New Testament letters and the New Testament authors give no indications of a papal office or deference to Peter in a way than how they would interact with the other apostles. And there certainly is not an indication that the offices of the specific 12 would carry on after they had passed. Christ sent them to make the good news known, those who had been with him and seen him, to solidify it then in writing. And from there on, the church would expand and grow, built upon what they had been commissioned to deliver, ultimately built upon Christ. And so Peter, he's a reminder of God's grace to us as he uses flawed people He's a commendable servant of the Lord, but he's not the head of the church, and he, he doesn't have an ongoing office as such. Christ is the head. Christ is the ultimate rock that we are built upon. Jesus is our foundation. We owe gratitude to Peter for the foundational work the Lord did through him, but if someone never learned who Peter was, they could still be a faithful member of the church because they've trusted in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so that takes us now to where I want to spend the rest of our time. We'll move on from Peter. Christ here has acknowledged by affirming Peter's declaration that he is Jesus. He is the Messiah and that he, Jesus, is building his church. And so as we head into the new year, and we strive to see the Lord magnified through our local congregation, I want this passage to remind us of universal truths about our standing as the church of God. That we belong to Christ, that Christ will build us, and that Christ will use us. Sorry, I sound like a teenage boy at times. I've got this cracking voice. <clears throat> If we don't understand these principles, 
we will easily become discouraged and base our hope solely on what we see happen here in our local congregation. But the work that Christ is doing is much bigger than just the work here in Malvern. He is building his church. So the first thing we see, we belong to Christ. Next week we'll begin, as I said, our donuts and doctrine classes. And the first catechism question is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Why does the catechism start there? Because it's so foundational for us to understand that we are a people created, a people created for a specific purpose and a specific person. We live in an intensely independent society. Freedom is one of our cultures, our country's highest virtues. The problem with freedom is we do have to define it. Because the reality is, there's no such thing as absolute freedom. Everything that we do is bound by some kind of law, consequence, or outside force to ourselves. I have the freedom to overeat, but when I exercise that freedom, I then become enslaved to extra weight. I have the freedom to rob a bank, but if I exercise that freedom, I'll be subject to the laws of the land and imprisoned. All of us are subject to laws. All of us are bound by the time and the space that we've been born into, and all of us are dependent on other people and other things for our survival. And this is because we were not created as beings who were meant to be sovereign unto ourselves, completely self-sufficient unto ourselves. We have to eat. We have to take something from the outside to keep us alive. We were created by a loving God to be in relationship with him and under his rule and reign. Therefore, freedom, which is a real thing, the freedom that we should strive for is freedom to live under his rule, to live free from evil and from sin, to live in the ways that he has designed us to. I kept thinking about the Toy Story movies, as I pondered this. If you've seen those, they're about a bunch of talking toys that come to life when their owner leaves. In the first Toy Story movie, we see Woody and he's a little cowboy and these other toys under the ownership of Andy. He's a typical young kid who loves toys and he plays with them well. However, across the street from Andy, we see Sid. Sid, he's got a maniacal laugh. He's got a skull t-shirt and he wears braces. He straps toys to rockets and he blows them off into space. He cuts them apart and stitches them together with other toys. No toy wants to be owned by Sid. And it's Andy's house that you want to be in. And the whole movie is them trying to get out of Sid's house back to Andy's. Toys are made to be owned and loved by children. But you want to be owned by the right child. We are made to be owned and loved by another as well. Jesus says here, I will build my church. This is a declaration of ownership, an astonishing one at that. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we see the church described interchangeably as belonging to Christ and belonging to God. 
In the Old Testament, no one else could claim ownership of God's people. This declaration of Christ is yet again another affirmation of his divinity, which is going to become ever more clear, especially as we head into chapter 17. And in his divine nature, he's set up as the head of the church, and not just as a ruler or a friend, but as an owner. Throughout the scriptures, we get bondservant language used. Now, in modern, independent America, where we threw off the monarchy so that we could be self-governed, those statements make us squirm, but they shouldn't. We squirm because we don't like tyrannical rule. We live in a world with a bunch of SIDs. We ourselves are SIDs at heart, and we don't want SID as our king, but Jesus Christ is no SID. When he says that he will build his church, that we are his people, he says so as a ruler who willingly laid down his life for his people. He strapped himself to the rocket. In Acts 20, 28, Paul says that pastors are to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. In our sin, we all were enslaved to darkness. In our sin, apart from Christ, we we're unable to walk in the freedom of the Spirit. The sin which promises us life is in fact robbing and oppressing us, whether we recognize it or not. What Christ Jesus has done is bought a people for himself, his treasured possession, so that for all of eternity, God might lavish his kindness upon us. In Ephesians, Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we tell him that we no longer want ownership over our lives. We've made a mess of it. We aren't meant to be our own gods. And when we hand our lives over to him, he grants us a life greater than we could have ever molded or modeled for ourselves. Church, we belong to Christ. That means something. We are his church. That's good news for us. He's the good shepherd. He's the prince of peace. He's the one who's mighty to save. He's the roaring lion of Judah. He's our strong defender. And he loves us as his own. Imagine the fiercity for those of you who have kids protection you feel over your child and amplify that by a thousand. Infinity. And he promises us that no matter what tribulations may happen, he will continue to build his church and will lead it on in eternal triumph. So the first thing that we see about Christ Jesus and his church is that he owns it. We belong to him, and that's a good thing. The second thing is that he will build us. If there's one concept that I think is hardest for us to get as believers, I think it's this one. We're so prone to self-sufficiency, short-sightedness, lack of faith, that we often live coward in fear like the rest of the world when the reality is we ought to be the most peace-filled, unflappable people around. In John 14, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The world often tries to give us peace. No one wants to be afraid. Sure, maybe it's fun to take in an occasional jump scare or a haunted house, but but we don't actually want to live in dread of tomorrow. Real fear, nobody wants that. And so the world offers us many solutions. Positive thinking, just shut it all out, forget about it. Practical helps, 21 ways to earn money fast, resume help, to land a job. And it serves up its own model of therapeutic moralism to try and assuage our guilty consciences before God and others. The problem with all of these things is that they have no surety, nothing we can anchor ourselves on. So we'll feel peace as long as we have a job. We'll feel secure so long as our bank account is high. We feel good about ourselves so long as no one else tells us we're doing something wrong and they stay in their lane. But all of these things eventually give way. They let us down. They cannot keep us. As a church, we can seek comfort through similar earthly means. So long as we have more and more visitors show up on a Sunday, we feel like God is pleased with us. So long as we aren't stretched thin financially, we think everything's going to be okay. So long as the proper governors or or presidents are in office, we will survive. The problem is, like the other solutions offered by the world, all of these things will let us down. If we set goals and mark the success of the church off our local numbers, there will be times we're disappointed. If we set goals and mark the success of the church off our bank account, there will be times we'll be disappointed. If we believe the future of the church, local and universal, depends on any particular ruler or government, we will be disappointed. Jesus spoke to these believers as they were at the dawn of the great evangelical explosion. The mission of Christ and the gospel was about to break forth on the earth. And that mission would be christened with Jesus' own persecution and death. Followed by a regular experience of persecution and tribulation for his people. And so at the onset of him first using the term church here with his disciples, he gives them this steadfast promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's an absolute certainty. This is why we want Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our owner, because unlike the world, he can keep his promises and he can offer us eternal security and hope. So that's why we have to be careful as individuals and as a church to never put our hope in our own plans or skills or abilities and programs. We use those things to the glory of God and we recognize God can bless them and use them in establishing his church. But ultimately, any growth, any fruitfulness, any forward action of the church comes about because of the sovereign mercy of Jesus Christ. So often I hear believers speak as if the church universal will fail if X, Y, or Z were to take place. This is a lie from the enemy. Jesus Christ will build his church. Irregardless of any war, any persecution, any government, any illness, any church splits, the forward mission of the church will progress. Read the book of Acts. It's a great book. In the midst of martyrdom and riots and imprisonments, 
We read over and over again how the gospel goes forward and multiplies and bears fruit. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the great offering of salvation, the kingdom of God has been unleashed on this earth and it is unstoppable. Though men and women over the centuries have tried to stop it, they've tried in vain. You can try and push over the Empire State Building with your bare hands. That thing's not going to budge. When Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, he means death will have no victory over it. When Jesus rose from the grave, he declared definitively that his church likewise would raise victorious. Valley Creek, I don't know what this year has ahead of us. I pray that we continue to see much fruit locally, lives saved, brothers and sisters strengthened. But if we don't, or it's not what we expected, it's not because Jesus Christ is losing. And you are still part of the church universal, which is eternally victorious. Janine Clay, a member of our church, and was a faithful member of First Baptist for many years, once sent me this quote, and I love it, and I've used it many times. In it, theologian A.W. Tozer says, We're in real need of a reformation that will lead to revival among the churches. But the church is not dead, neither is it dying. The church cannot die. A local church can die. This happens when all the old saints in a place fall asleep and no young saints arise to take their place. Sometimes, under these circumstances, the congregation ceases to be a a church or there's no congregation left and the doors of the chapel are nailed shut. But such a condition, however deplorable, should not discourage us. The true church is the repository of the life of God among men. And if in one place the frail vessels fail, that life will break out somewhere else. Of this we may be sure. As we strive to make the gospel known, let's rest all of our confidence on the work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who will build and he will complete it. But he does still use us in that process. And so that takes us to our final point. We belong to Christ, we're built by Christ, and we will be used for Christ. In verse 19, we get this statement, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I actually prefer the NASB, which says, shall have been loosed in heaven, and shall have been bound in heaven. It's clunkier, but it catches the proper tense from the Greek. This verse is another one that has been misunderstood over the years. We can get the picture of Peter standing at the pearly gates as he's guarding entrance into heaven. Or some people use this for unhindered power for us to be able to bind and loose anything that we deem necessary on the earth. A proper understanding of this passage protects us from those errors, but it also emboldens us to see the significance of the mission that we have been sent on by Christ. The keys described here to bind and to loose, they're not specific to just Peter. We know from a later declaration that it's granted to all of us as followers of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks to all the disciples about walking with brothers and sisters who've sinned against us. And he uses this exact same language of binding and loosing, the same phrase. But what is it then that we're talking about? What are the keys we've been given? 
Well, I think a clue to that is found not only in this passage, but also in a passage in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus calls out the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. He says, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus uses this metaphor of entering and being barred in both places and the metaphor of a key in both places. And in both places, what's being spoken of is the knowledge of salvation. Peter has just made a declaration that Jesus is the Christ. He and the others are well on their way to fully understanding the message of salvation that Christ was bringing. This message of salvation and the way of the kingdom is a message that either grants one entry into the kingdom if they accept it or binds them for judgment if they refuse it. What Jesus is saying here to Peter is, and to all of us, is that with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we have the keys of the kingdom. And as we use them and make them known to the people around us, we will be binding and loosing souls for God. Now the question is, is it then our determination of who will and will not receive and enter? And this is where I think the NASB is helpful. This shall have been loosed language is not a simple, if we do this, then that. It indicates this kind of out of time future experience, meaning that what we bind and loose is only that which is already decidedly bound and loosed in heaven. We aren't the determining factor. We are a means. The Lord intends to use us, his people, to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known. But just as Peter didn't come to understand Christ's identity through flesh and blood, but through a revelation from God, so too that which we bind and loose is only happening because God himself has bound and loosed in heaven. This doesn't negate our need to bring the word of God and the gospel to bear upon people, but our work rests not on our own efforts, our own decisions, but works and rests upon him who does the freeing. We're seeking to be faithful, to follow where the Lord is leading us. Our mission as a church is to glorify God and to make him known. That's our primary mission. We could set goals to start this year, start this ministry or start that outreach, but if we aren't in all those things we're doing, proclaiming the gospel, using the keys, we aren't acting properly as a church. We take the keys of the kingdom, the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the authority of God's word, and we proclaim it and we make it known. We seek the glory of God to see the church grown and people saved and strengthened that they might have eternal life with God in heaven. And from there, this year and forevermore, we simply seek to be faithful to that which God is calling us to. And if you're here with us and you don't yet know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm so glad that you have joined us today. You've heard today about the keys of the kingdom, about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he took on human flesh, he died and he rose from the grave so that we might have forgiveness for our rebellion and our sin against God. That's what we are about as a church. The freedom, the forgiveness, 
the love, the life, the community that come through forgiveness that Jesus Christ has offered us through his death and resurrection. I encourage you to consider that today, that you might be loosed and freed in him. And church, as we head into 2024, my goal for us is that we would continue to cling to Christ Jesus who is our head. That we would press on in faithfulness knowing that whatever happens over this next year to us as a church, to us as a culture, to the world at large, Jesus Christ is on his throne. He is building his church and nothing will stop that. So let that empower you today to live radically, to live faithfully, and to live peacefully in this world for our God. Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you that you have given us these promises. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the victory he has shown us over death and the grave. And I pray for all of us here in this room that we would be able to anchor our hope upon that, that immovable truth. So even if we would go home from here and get the worst possible news we could ever think of, though it's hard, we can still have a peace and a hope and a steadiness knowing that you are on the throne. Father, thank you that you have promised that you work all things together for the good of those who love you. Thank you that as your children, as your church, you will guard, protect, and defend us. You will bring us about victorious. And Lord, we do just ask and we pray that for us as a local expression of your church, we ask that you would keep us from sin. Keep us from error. Lead us in the ways of righteousness. Help us to walk by the truths that you have given us through your word. Help us to love your son, Jesus Christ, that we might glorify you and praise you in this year and beyond. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.